0: Welcome to OnScript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at OnScript.study/slash biblicalworld.
1: Hey, everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Uh, I wanted to just mention that at the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature in San Antonio, um, OnScript, our other podcasts, we're going to have a live event. Uh, That's on Sunday, November 19th from 8 to 10 p.m. at uh, the restaurant on the Riverwalk called the Little Rhine Post House. So we'll have information soon on our website about that, but um, we'd love to have you there. There's going to be food and drinks available for free, um, or at least some of that is going to be free. And uh, we're going to have... Um, Dr. Sandra Glahn talking about her recent book, Nobody's Mother Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity in the New Testament. So it's relevant to this podcast too. So um, yeah, that's at 8 to 10 p.m. on November 19th in San Antonio. So for anyone in the area or attending the Society Biblical Literature meeting, I would love to see you there. Hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for sharing the word about it and for all of you who support us through um, giving a rating a review on Apple Podcasts. We're sharing the word. We're just listening in. We appreciate that. So hope you enjoy it. Take care.
0: So my name is Amy Balo and I'll be your host for this episode, which is the fourth installment of our series, New Perspectives on the Bible and Nature. Today's guests are going to introduce us to a relatively new area of study, and that is animal studies. This is an interdisciplinary of study that encompasses some of the approaches that we're used to hearing about on Biblical World, such as history and archaeology and close text study, but it also brings a lot of other stuff to the table. So um, I don't want to introduce this too much because we're going to talk a lot about it today. So I'd like to begin by introducing our two guests. So we have Susanna Miller who is the Chancellor's Fellow in Hebrew Bible Old Testament at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And Sebastian Doan is Associate Professor of Theological and Religious Studies at Université Laval in Quebec City, Quebec. Both of them are co-chairs of the brand new Society of Biblical Literature Program Unit, Called the Bible and Animal Studies, which will make its debut at this year's annual meeting in San Antonio in November. Um, this is a very exciting thing for them. Uh, I know how much work goes into getting a program unit founded. Uh, it's definitely <laughs> no small feat. Um, and so, a huge congratulations goes to them and their committee for getting that done. Um, so, without further ado, uh, welcome to the show, Susanna and Sebastian. Uh, and thank you for being here.
2: Thanks for the invitation.
0: Yes, it's it's an honor to have you. Um, as some of our listeners will know, I kind of work in this area or I'm starting to work in this area of the Bible and nature. And of course, animals are a huge part of that, right? Um, and humans as potentially animals are also a big part of that. So I want to start off just with a a nice gentle question that I ask everyone. Uh, and that is to tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to how you came to do animal studies. So either Susanna or Sebastian, whoever wants to go first.
3: Sure, I'll start us off. So my background um, and my PhD was on the book of Proverbs and it was a a fairly mainstream kind of literary analysis of the book of Proverbs, um, which was very interesting in its own right. Um, But then as I was coming to the end of my PhD, I started to feel the desire to do something which was a bit more um, connected to the struggles that we see in the contemporary world. And so I was was thinking about these issues and looking for a new project, and I believe it was in 2017, just as I was finishing off my PhD, and I went to the Society of Biblical Literature, SBL conference, Um, and at that point there was a a consultation on animal studies. Um, So uh, you're right in saying that we've just set up the new program unit, but uh, we're not the first people to do this, I should say. Um, There was this brief consultation for a few years before, um, and I think that the session that I went to uh, was chaired by Arthur Walker-Jones. Um, and I remember going to the session and hearing these scholars talk about animal studies in the Bible and being so inspired by it and feeling like this was a place where there was genuinely new ground to be broken um, and something which has implications for um, ecological hermeneutics, uh, which I'd always been interested in, and also had a, a social justice angle as well, Um and so I, I became very excited by it. And that was really the starting point. And so after my PhD, um, I started to, to transition and segue into to doing more animal studies, uh, which led to me to where I am today. Um, and also, I just I love animals. I <laughs> feel like, right. Um, and I've been a vegan for, for a good few years now. So it's always been a sort of um, an ethical issue, which has been close to my heart as well.
2: Well, for me, I I did my PhD in um, Matthew 1 and 2, the first chapters of uh, the Gospel According to Matthew, uh, which has this genealogy of Jesus with 40 dudes and a couple women and no animals. And that's the way Matthew wraps up all of Israel's history. So no animal connections there. But the way I worked was with reader response. So um, not so much a focus on authorial intent, but... The relationship between text and readers, and I'm I'm really interested in what how how come we have all these different interpretations for the same text, and what are the d- different um, factors that count into that. So I get really interested into contemporary questions that we pose to ancient texts, and to see how we can uh, deal with that without getting into fundamentalist um, patterns um so gender and the questions but also i got into uh as well uh ecological hermeneutics i'm actually completing a book on that right now and and with these questions of uh that are really important to us but not necessarily important in the biblical text um w- there comes the important methodological questions how do we do that and, and um so by working on these types of questions, I, I got into animal studies as well. And I really enjoy um, the interdisciplinary aspect of it. I've been reading a lot of philosophy and uh, and cultural studies. And so, we're not the only ones uh, that are interested in animals now. It's something that's, that we talk more and more in all sorts of fields, including uh, biblical <laughs> scholarship. So, uh, and Generally, all the cool people in our field are working on animals. So, I've been enjoying working with Susanna and all the other gang that you, we're going to see at the SBL.
0: Right. And I, and, you know, have a passion for animals as well. I, I should give away that my, my two animals, my dogs, are like at my feet sleeping while we're talking. Um, so, I have something nice to. Uh, to kind of get some energy from here. Um, It's the best Mm -hmm. way to keep them quiet is to lock them in the room with me. So um, (laughs) yeah, but I appreciate your, you sort of segued into my next question, Sebastian. And with so many things that happen with like looking at the environment and some of the problems that we face um, the answers are really like interdisciplinary. Like it really Mm -hmm. takes all fields on hand or on deck to, kind of come at some of these questions and some of these problems. And I think the Bible has so much to offer um, because, you know, not only is it like a cool, interesting ancient text, um, but so many people hold to it, right? And um, are interested in what interpretations are available to them. And so I think by offering interpretations of how the Bible handles animals and questions about our relationship to them, like, that's just so important, right? Because people found, literally found their their beliefs and their lives and their ways of being on these texts. So it's quite interdisciplinary. So it probably looks different in every field. But generally speaking, what is animal studies and what is it trying to do?
2: Well, uh, for me, animal studies, it's kind of like a set of questions that you can ask uh, to take seriously to, to pay attention closely to animal lives not real animal lives you know like dogs are not metaphorical they're real dogs and we talk about them in text but when we we see them in texts, it's like oh no that these are not real dogs They're just uh, in the textual dogs but we don't do that with human characters jesus in the gospel is a real dude uh, how come we don't see the same thing with animals but anyway animal studies is to take a serious attention to these animals, uh, past and present, and, and to see how they interact with human societies. Um, we talk, you know, we talk about animal studies, but we all, we could also talk about human animal studies, because there's always been uh, this way of thinking, what is a human in relationship to animals? Philosophers have been doing it for a long time. But um, what contemporary philosophers have been trying to do is to say, whoops, uh, maybe we have We have founded our philosophical way of seeing what is a human with uh, too big of a distinction with other animals and that fundamentally we're not so different. So um, we we might talk about Jacques Derrida um, a little bit more later, but he he really asked questions to see, well, uh, maybe the border that we set is not as um, solid as we think. And that we can rethink animals and humans other, otherwise. So anyway, the, the interdisciplinary aspect—you uh, got archaeology, philosophy, philosophy, ethics, obviously, um, literature, cultural studies—but also uh, gender studies and postcolonial studies all come into play when we uh, we want to think about animal studies in a critical way. So it's not just about like biblical animal studies. It's not just about. Seeing what texts are talking about what animals, but it's also uh, seeing what effects that is that to read those texts um, for the animals and humans that are here today. And um, so it, it's it's a lot of different questions, much more than what animals were there in the biblical uh, times or w- what are there in, in the, the texts that are there. It, it's to ask uh, questions to um rethink uh, what it is to be an animal, what it is to be a human and interact.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I fully agree with your explanation and I would just add to that. I mean, you mentioned um, ethics and also the intersection with things like feminist and uh, decolonial studies. Um, And for me, I feel like animal studies almost does for the study of biblical animals what, for example, feminist criticism has done for the study of biblical women. That It adds this more um, justice and ethics oriented Um, lens to the study. And in a similar way to how feminists have interrogated uh, the category of woman and what that means, animal studies scholars interrogate this category of animal and what exactly we mean by that. And often with this, this ethical and justice lens applied to the text as well.
0: Great. So that's so interesting uh, (laughs) because there's so many layers to it. Right. Um, And I think it really is the kind of study that we're, we're ripe to do, I think, not just as a society, but as a field, because we've done a lot of these related approaches and done some of the groundwork in order to make this work. Um, Like we've learned a lot in trying new approaches and can kind of um, bring that wisdom to, to these, the sets of questions. So to kind of embody this a little bit more, so our readers can kind of see the value of this I would like to put both of you on the spot and ask you to walk us through um, just a little passage, a little case study um, that you've done or are doing um, to kind of help us understand what this looks like on the ground.
3: So I'll start this off. Um, so my, my recent research has been looking at um, non-human animals with a, a kind of an intersectional lens. Um, your listeners may be familiar with intersectionality as a cultural theory. Um, particularly um, within uh, gender and ethnicity, race uh, research. And intersectionality argues that all societies are structured by multiple axes of identity and difference. Um, So it's not just that you're a woman, but you're a black woman or you're a a, a disabled man or or whatever it might be. And some recent animal studies scholars have started to incorporate species as uh, an important intersection within that mix. So I'm really interested in the way that this power dynamic between uh, humans and non-human animals intersects with all sorts of other power dynamics uh, going on within the biblical world. And so one example of this that I've been thinking about recently is the way that non-human animal laborers and human laborers uh, may have been treated in in various different ways. So I've recently written a piece where I look at uh, these two categories of human and non-human laborers and how uh, their fates and their representations are intertwined. Um, And so I look at this in a number of ways. So, for example, I look uh, materially, economically, socially, and psychologically. So, for example, uh, materially, we see that um, agricultural animals and livestock, and also slaves, were subjected to uh, forced body mutilations, like branding and piercing. Uh, We have uh, textual and archaeological and um, iconographic evidence of this. Uh, we even have, for example, in um, some documents from the the Jews in, in Babylon, in exile, um, texts which talk about branded slaves and branded animals. So you can see the way that both categories are being visually marked and treated in the same way. Equally, we have things like uh, whips and staffs, which were used in instruments of violence used on slaves and animals alike. Uh, So that's kind of the material dimension. We also have uh, the economic dimension, which is to say that both of them were treated as commodities, bought, sold, gifted, traded, bartered, all sorts of things uh, like this. And we have economic documents uh, from across the ancient Near East to this effect. Um, They were also taken in warfare. Humans and animals were taken as plunder in warfare. And we have various accounts of this um, in the Bible as well, which some of which are very problematic. So in the account of the Midianites, for example, you have all these people and also all these animals taken. Um, or David and the Amalekites would be another example of that. So treated um, economically in, in, a, in a comparable way. Uh, similarly, you can think of, you have these kind of lists of the Patriarch's great wealth. So Abraham had all these cattle and all these sheep and all these slaves. Um, And so they're listed together as though they are equivalent commodities signaling the great wealth of the Patriarch. Uh, So that's the economic dimension. There's also a more social dimension, uh, which is that their role within society and social structures were somewhat equivalent. For example, both uh, slaves or servants and non-human animals may have been in some way conceptualized as peripheral members of the kinship structure, which I think we have to hold in tension with what I just said about them being commodified. This is not simply they were either um, objects or they were kin. I think in a in a certain way, both groups were both. So we have, for example, in uh, the Sabbath commandment, where slaves and animals are both given the Sabbath, equally the Sabbath of the land, which is when um, the, the land gets to rest and then the, the laborers and the animals are allowed to eat off the land. So they're given these sort of equivalent social positions. And then the final dimension, which I've been thinking about, is the more psychological dimension. Um, and one particularly th- important thing to mention here is just the power of animalization or dehumanization, which is to say that certain groups of people are categorized as animals, which works kind of both conceptually and uh, neurologically in the brain. Now conceptually, by treating someone as an animal, if you think it's right to harm an animal or that it's not objectionable to harm an animal, equally, you can harm that person um, in the same way as you would harm the animal. Um, and then there's some really fascinating um, psychological research on dehumanisation as well, which looks at how when we dehumanise somebody... The um, I think it's the medial prefrontal cortex or something. Disclaimer, I'm not, I'm not a neuroscientist, <laughs> I'm not, not a psychologist. So I may be wrong about that specific detail. But the part of the brain which is contro- in control of social cognition is kind of deactivated when we treat somebody like an animal. So we're not seeing them as a, a, a social entity who we should treat with ethics and respect. Um, and so that kind of ethical sense is switched off. Um, and instead, we have a heightened... Um, amygdala and insulin reaction, which is closely associated with things like disgust. And so just the power of treating somebody like an animal um, can can be incredibly harmful, which we see today in, in the contemporary world all the time um, in really, really worrying ways. So that's my little case study um, of something that I've been thinking about, this, this interconnection um, from an intersectional perspective of animal and human laborers.
0: Yeah, that's a great example of not just you know connecting biblical studies to animal studies but just how much work goes into this right you're looking at everything from neuroscience to ancient texts and archaeology and all of the stuff in between right and so uh, in addition to whatever close readings you're doing of the actual bible so there's a lot of work like in both kind of historical directions to understand the implications of like just even one biblical text and, and it totally resonates with me what you say about, you know, the, the basic core similarities that we have with animals at like a neurological level. You know, so it happens to be that I'm married to a psychologist. And uh, when we got to know one of our dogs after he had a tough background, learning that like animal PTSD is actually a thing. And there's ways that you can like damage an animal's psychology, right? And let alone a humans. Right. And so like, there's a huge responsibility there um, that we have learned from the sciences that they don't, they don't feel less right. And they don't process in ways that are you know different than ours or that kind of dismiss trauma. Um, And I think that's really important to keep in mind.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think we have a lot of unlearning to do in that respect, that we still live in the kind of the wake of Descartes and people who thought that animals were just machines, they were just automatons who didn't suffer and and didn't have feelings. And actually, the more research is done on animals, the more we learn just how complex animal minds and animal lives um, and animal bodies are.
2: And what's crazy is we have this disconnect we know this, but we try to not know it. And we try to not mm. see where the fish that's on my plate comes from and how it was killed. And so, and w- w- as a father, my son, he sees that. He's like, well, it's crazy. How can people kill fish? Um, but it's like, yeah. yeah, well, we do it every day. Uh, you know, it's uh, But now we know m- more and more Uh the kinds of emotions, affective uh, intensities, uh, memory, um, and all the the things that used to be exclusively thought of as human, well, we see that, that it's also the case in, in different animals and very in di- very different ways. Um, and if, if you don't mind, I'll jump into one of my uh, research. Um, Prophet Joel, there's this environmental catastrophe that's happening. Fire everywhere, disaster, nothing is growing, there's no food, and... We see humans, but also animals, and also the soil are all lamenting together. Uh, And there's this effective intensity that goes between all these different species and even to the soil, and they all uh, are brought up to the Lord. Uh, So there's a uh, circulation that's interspecies that's happening in the text. But usual interpretation is to see, oh, well, the animals that are mourning to the Lord are like an example for humans. No, the text uh, is talking about real animals who are having a rel- direct relationship to the Lord. And we see that in many texts in the Hebrew Bible, but we kind of discounted it. Uh, and, and once uh, the situation comes back, there's rain and everything is flourishing again. Well, we have the same rejoicing and, and the same kind of language is given to animals and humans who rejoice in the same way. Um, so it, it speaks a, a little bit to what you were ta- talking about, about your, your dogs. Um, well, when we are in con- close contact with animals, we do see that they have this emotional, effective um, way of life and that, inter- that that's not unlike ours. Uh, and that there's a close relationship to that. And we see that in the text in Joel. Um, I'll, I'll bring an, an, a, a second example of, of my research in New Testament for New Testament folks, because I, I work a little bit in both, which is a di- different way of working that I, I used. Um, on, in John's gospel, I was inspired by uh, Derrida, um, the animal therefore I am. And Jacques Derrida is a philosopher who decided to think about the experience of standing naked after a shower and being looked at by his own cat. And um, it it seems completely um, banal, but it it is not. For him, it was like, what's happening um, how is my cat perceiving me and what it is to be looked at naked? And he felt some kind of a shame in there. And so he, he, he asked this question for him, the, the animal, therefore I follow and therefore I am. Um, I, I use this the, this in, in looking at the lamb in John's, uh, John's gospel. Right from the start, John the Baptist points to, towards Jesus and saying, here is the Lamb of God, and the disciples start to follow Him. So uh, it's, it's, very, it's, it's something very similar. So Jacques Derrida asks uh, us, what, are the, uh, how, what happens to us when we follow an animal? Well, the, the disciples are following this Lamb of God. We, again, we see this as a rhetorical lamb. But if, if we use that word lamb, it's, it's because it means something. One of my colleagues uh, was at a dissertation about uh, the Lamb of God. And at the end of it, uh, he asked the, 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 the student, what if we changed it for crocodile? You have not spoken at all about what it is to be a lamb and how that impacts the reading of the text. You could have changed for crocodile and it would have been the same. Well, it's not the crocodile of God, it's the lamb of God. What, it is, what is it to be a lamb? And what is it to follow a lamb? And how does that change the disciples who follow him? And what's interesting is when you continue reading chapter 10, well, then Jesus becomes the shepherd, the good shepherd who, and, and who knows his, uh, his flock and the flock knows him. And so the the readership and the disciples become these these lambs um, with this shepherd. And at the end of the gospel, chapter 21, there's this um, very interesting text discussion between the resurrected Lord and Peter. And um, three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And uh, he says, yes, and then tend to my flock. So Peter, who was part of the lambs, becomes himself a shepherd. And one of the passages that we don't speak about uh, much uh, is that at the end completely of the the gospel, we see that uh, Peter is talked about when he was young and when he was old for his death. And that when he was young, he could walk wherever he wants, tie his own belt. But at the end, he can't. He's he's gonna be um, tied up and brought where he doesn't want to. And that's what happens to all domestic animals. Almost uh, um, all, all the, the 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 farm animals, uh, all the lambs, they, they don't die of old age. They get killed. And so Peter, as Jesus, there's this image of him being brought to his own, his death without his consent. And so there's this animality in Peter. And through this, and what's fascinating is that it's only at that point, after we talk about Peter's death like an animal, that um, Jesus said, "Follow me." He said follow me to the other disciples at the beginning of the gospel but Peter there's a specific uh, passage in chapter 13 where we say uh, Jesus says to Peter that he uh, he can't say he can't follow him yet uh, because of all well, he he uh, he's going to deny him uh, later But at the end, once we've spoken about him being uh, tied up and brought where he doesn't want to and dying essentially like an animal, like Jesus dies as well, well, at that point, we can talk about Peter following Jesus. So uh, for me, this uh, whole um, way of thinking brings out what it is to be a disciple and that maybe there's um, an animal way of being a disciple in John's gospel that we don't see usually.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting case too, because if you understand what there is to understand about lambs, it gives away the end of the story, right? (laughs) From the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, So for an ancient audience, I mean, that may be a bit of a spoiler to think of it that way. But it just I think it goes to shows how much that we live a different lifestyle, right? Like we are not generally shepherds in our society. Um, You know, we are not agrarian anymore. Uh, There's a lot of knowledge that we've lost as we have you know, changed societally. And of course, we've gained a lot too. I mean, otherwise the planet couldn't sustain seven, eight billion of us. Um, but there's a lot to recover as well in this kind of work that you're doing. And so it's it's as creative and modern and interdisciplinary as it is. I mean, we couldn't do this kind of work 100 years ago, 50 years ago, even. but still it's like re- almost in a way you have to start by recovering older knowledge and then you can do this, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the biblical world was, was a multi-species world. It wasn't humans in their cities, sanitized and away from non-human life. All multiple species were living together. Even if you kind of look at the archaeology of Israelite households, you'd have a space for your non-human animals uh, to be housed in your home with you, which is a way of life that we in the, in the modern West have lost a lot. And I think this is also partly why it's really important to listen to the voices of non-Western peoples or, or indigenous communities, who may have a, a closer relationship with non-human animals than than we often do in in our kind of uh, nice Western city cultures or, or wherever we happen to be living.
2: Yeah, and we always project our anthropology, our cosmology, our way of seeing the world on the texts. And without knowing, we project this modern idea of humans completely uh, different from animals and limiting uh, animal capacities to what we think they can or uh, can do. But um, what I love about uh, pre-modern texts is that sometimes they they are very close to post-modern texts. Um, we have... You know, it, for example, uh, pre-modern texts uh, in the Bible, there's no problem with uh, animals having a direct relationship with God. And, uh, in Job, the last chapters, uh, there's this whole world of relations, uh, direct relations between God and the animals in which Job, uh, Job has no idea, and God is the, bringing him the grand tour. Um, but in postmodern literature, we have that as well. We have complete stories told from the animal point of view, and in which we have it so um, to destabilize a little bit how us humans we uh, we thought about ourselves completely separately. So I, I like to to bring these worlds in conversation and to step over the Descartes world that you talked about.
3: <laughs> yeah, and then you can even you can bring in sort of modern biological and ethological research into that as well. Like there's there's been amazing research on animal spirituality and religion. Um, there's a little YouTube video, which you can, listeners can probably go and look up, of um, Jane Goodall and chimp mm. religiosity, um, where it's these, these chimps and a waterfall. And they're doing these kind of um, dances and ritualized movements in the presence of the waterfall. And Jane Goodall, um, who is a, a brilliant uh, researcher in this area is giving you an explanation of it. And she sees this as a form of spirituality being exhibited in these non-human animals.
2: In the same way, you have elephants and other creatures that are mourning, grieving the loss of somebody. Uh, And um, so you you see these videos, or or elephants painting, uh, great videos of elephants painting. So things that we thought were just exclusive to humans are not. And going back to the biblical text uh, helps us to see that uh, well, there was a pre-modern way of thinking in which animals maybe had uh, uh, were, were thought of differently. Um, so, yeah, uh, it, these things can be put into conversations.
3: Yeah, And there's loads of passages about animal wisdom in the Hebrew Bible as well. It, I mean, as I said before, my, my research originally was in Proverbs and you have those passages. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. And, and, and various other passages in the Hebrew Bible um, about the wisdom of non-human creatures as well
2: and but sometimes we have to look at them critically uh, and they're used uh, to we, we project on animals some of the, uh, the the human traits that we want and that when you actually get to talk uh, not talk with but see these animals and be with them you see that no no that's just something that we put on them to uh, to, to bring on this proverbial conversation but it's not so much the case so anyway yeah uh, yeah
3: but i think this is one of the the kind of the perpetual problems that we come up against in animal studies that we can't We cannot think in human categories. It's impossible for us. I mean, you mentioned in your explanation of your research before, what is it like to be a lamb? And that's just a question we can't answer. I mean, there's that seminal essay, uh, What Is It Like to Be a Bat?, Uh, written, I think, in the 1970s. And and we just, as humans, we have no way of putting ourselves into the mind and the body of a non-human creature to see the world like that. And so... We as biblical scholars looking at these ancient representations of non-human lives, there's so many layers to get through there Um, if we're trying, if we want to try and understand something real, either about the Bible or about animals or or whatever our aim might be. It's very complex.
0: And even the exercise of, of trying, right? Like there's so much to learn there about our limitations and our abilities to actually see through another's eyes. And I think we struggle enough to do that as humans, right, to see through another person's viewpoint, uh, but to see through another species that has like a somewhat different brain, but mostly the same brain. um, There's just like all these different layers to consider. That's where this is just like endlessly interesting to me because there's so much you can do with animal studies from all different perspectives. And I mean, you guys touched upon just a handful of texts, right, where animals are important. And it's one of those things that when you are alerted to it and then you start reading around the Bible again, like you'll just see it everywhere. Um, I think especially in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Job was a great example that you brought in, um, Sebastian. And and I was thinking about Job earlier when Susanna was commenting on the slavery issue, because one of the changes that happens in like Job's persona between the end, beginning and the end is that in the beginning, he has lots of slaves, right? Um, but at the end, at the end, there is no mention of slaves once he rebuilt his life.
3: Which it always makes me sad. He just had this amazing celebration of animal freedom in Job 39, and then at the end it's like, and then Job had all these animals working for him on his farm, which always makes me a little bit sad from the reaching end of Job.
2: <laughs> I, I was talking about other important biblical texts. There's um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in uh, Daniel 4, who um, who goes through this transformation? He's talked about as a tree, and then he he becomes this grazing animal, kind of like a, a, a cattle. Uh, and through this experience, he has a spiritual experience by becoming this animal. And it's mm-hmm. while he's an animal that he learns of humility and becomes in contact with the Lord, and then can come back as a, a human figure to be king in a whole different way. So uh, it's it, there's this incredible transformation. In this character, uh, because he's uh, spoken of in other wise than human ter- terms, and it, it, there's kind of like this. Um, in, in other biblical texts, we have this too. That there's kind of this the, the sensibility to the Lord from animals that humans kind of don't have, and that maybe um, in New Testament we have a. It's post-biblical, but that um, around the, the birth of Christ, the the, the animals uh, that, that that we put in the manger. After well, tell us something about that too. That, that they, to to talk about this newborn baby that also has something divine there. While well, the animals are are there and they it, they see that. But anyway, so I'm getting off track. But we have all sorts of biblical texts that invite us to talk about animals differently. Like poetry, uh, the Psalms have great ways of talking about how animals rejoice to the Lord as well. So there's there's um and, and I think art job is to try to read these texts the less anthropocentric way possible, to, to, to see that there's not just humans in this creation, and there's not just humans who are in, 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 rea- in this relationship with the Lord and together. Uh, so the, these texts are very multifaceted and uh, we have to discover the richness of these texts.
0: So one of the things that I've I've noticed reading around, like especially in, in Job and then some of these other examples that we've been talking about just, just in the past few minutes, oftentimes animals are appealed to to kind of try to teach humans humility. Like there's always something that animals know or understand that humans are missing. And it's, sometimes it's just obvious, right? Like about like animals celebrating Yahweh or just uh, having mm-hmm. like a relationship with him that is like more honest and pure and and things like that. Um, a little more straightforward than probably what we have to offer the deity. Um, but there's, there's always like a less something to be learned from them too. And there's something about the animal-ness that... Is is a positive in these texts, right? Like Nebuchadnezzar becoming a a beast for a while, like he learned something very serious about that experience. um, And it makes him a better person in the end. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's always something that's like almost privileged about it. Uh, I don't want to use that word very lightly, Mm -hmm. but um, there's always, it's just a different world for them. and, And it's a different relationship to the deity.
3: At the same time, though, I think it's important that we don't sort of make all biblical texts speak in the same voice, because I think what we've been talking about is absolutely true for some biblical texts, but there are other texts that say, oh, animals are stupid, or we should rule and subdue animals, or, or whatever it might be, that these texts are multifaceted, as you said, and we shouldn't just greenwash them and say, oh, it was all great in the Bible, and they all loved all their animals, and it was all happy all the time. And um, there are also problematic texts, which... I think it's also our duty as biblical scholars to acknowledge and call call the texts out, um, if for the for every might be.
0: Right, and that's the miracle of of Balaam's donkey, right? Is like you don't expect a donkey to have mm. wisdom. You don't expect it to see angels. You don't expect it to especially talk. Yeah, um, and so that kind of you know it, it's it's playing on an assumption that like it's a dumb animal that is meant to submit to human Mm -hmm. authority. Right. And so you can see Mm -hmm. a lot of areas. And then of course, like dogs aren't portrayed very well. Um, and probably for good reasons in those days. Right. I mean, they're scavengy kind of animals that can get very nasty very quickly. (laughs) and, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, also negative assumptions as you're saying, and and we can see those too. I think what I would like to do next, this might lead us in a bit of a philosophical direction, but we'll see where it goes. Um, I want to um, come back to your new SBL program unit, the Society of Biblical Literature program unit, for those of you who aren't used to the acronym. Um, So this is like our professional association in the field of biblical studies. um, And we have this really large meeting um, once a year in November. And so there are all these different program units that have different focuses in biblical studies. And so this is where... I'm I'm very excited that the animal studies one is now in the books, and so I want to just share with our readers the description of the unit, and then there's some things I would like to kind of talk about or pull out there. So I'm just going to go ahead and and read the description, if that's okay with both of you, and then we'll go from there. So, using animal studies and other critical theories, this unit examines representations of non-human animals in biblical texts or contexts and related constructions of humanness and animality. We explore new ways of reading that critique and move beyond binaries like human animal and nature culture, aiming for interpretive practice supporting multi-species flourishing. Though our primary focus is the Bible, we aim to enrich biblical interpretation through dialogue with other scriptures and often marginalized oral traditions of subjugated or colonized peoples. So there's a lot in that description, as I'm sure all of your readers are trying to keep track of of kind of what all um, these folks are doing. And I guess one of the questions, and this touches on kind of what we've been talking about already, so it won't be like a surprise question. So as you were kind of thinking through your vision for what this area of biblical studies can do what kinds of scholarly or ethical or even personal questions did you find you all kept coming around to as you you and your committee were were thinking about this i know that's a, a big loaded question and there's a lot to say um, but if you could just kind of you know what comes to your mind first
2: one thing that didn't pop up uh, with the group of scholars we've been working off is the zo archaeological aspect of the of this uh, it's not our main focus, but it is important. Uh, for example, I just finished reading a, a book on, on, um, eating in biblical times and the, the number of pig bones, uh, in different sites brings up full of questions about, um, identity uh, and ethnicity and relationship to other. And, and, and there's a, uh, we, we assumed, um, stuff that doesn't quite, um, come through the reality of the data that comes out. And there's so, uh, when you dig on a site, you have lots of pottery, but you also have lots of animal bones, and it brings up lots of questions that you can relate with biblical texts. So that's one aspect that that we might cover a little bit, but that's not our main focus. As you said, our main focus is more literary, philosophical, philosophical questions, uh, and, and relationship with decolonial and gender studies and all, all, all that. Um, yeah, Su- Susanna?
3: Well, I was going to say, I mean, the first thing that struck that came to my mind was this issue of of the binaries of this kind of we we create these sealed off binary categories of human and animal or nature and culture or male and female or whatever it might be and um, but actually these are just v- very much cultural constructions rather than being ontological realities um, and so. One of the things which many people working in animal studies are trying to do is is trying to unlearn that binary way of thinking and allowing more scope for fluidity and complexity and um, entangled realities rather than having these kind of very strict categories and and sort of superimposing them onto the text that we have.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, really helpful for rereading as well, um, because I think it opens us up to different possibilities mm-hmm. for certain texts. Um So I'm going to kind of pick on something that I worked on a a little bit ago, and that is, um, so I have a forthcoming piece in a volume on religion and animal conservation. Uh, And, you know, as one of, I think, two, maybe two Bible scholars in that volume, I really wanted to do something on Genesis 1 through 3. And one of the things that I um, kind of found to slowly going through it, you know, again, I feel like every time you slowly go through that text, it's different than the last time you went through it. I think, and this is a good example of where you were talking about imposing that human and animal binary, because I don't know that it's at all clear um, that we're separate because if you look at day six, you know uh, after you know the deity brings forth living creatures according to their kind, and specifically livestock and creeping things and beasts, right after that, he says, Let us make humankind in our image and after our likeness.' Um, And, of course, that's been interpreted, you know, the the plural there is interpreted in a lot of different ways. Um, To historians of religion, it's like a remnant of polytheism. Um, Some people have said it's angels. Christian theologians tend to think of it as the Trinity. Um, But if you just look at the narrative itself and what characters there are, all that exists at that point that's like conscious are animals. So I ended up sort of accidentally, um, not knowing I was going to end up doing this, arguing that humans are made um, in our image and our likeness um, as being part animal, part deity, Um, that there's something of both reflected in humankind. And so I don't, it just really emphasized what you just said, Susanna, that this binary is something that we're perhaps reading back into it and saying like, oh, look at our specialness. We're created in the image and likeness of God. Um, but we don't understand what our
3: refers to. <laughs> That's such an interesting interpretation. Oh, thank
0: you. Yeah.
2: And, and it brings me to think of a, a couple of collective books that, that have been done in our field. Uh, Divine Animality, uh, uh, that was edited by uh, Stephen Moore. Uh, animal Theory, Creaturely Theory. So, and, and also this other book, um, The Bible and Post-Humanism. This, these post-human categories, uh, we, we see that... Uh, what we talk about with the divine, with animals and humans are maybe more mixed up than we think uh, in the text and that we, in our modern Cartesian way, have singled out humans from this world. And uh, But the, the, it's much more complex than that. And uh, we, could, we could also work with the, you know, the words, the nefesh hayah. It's, it's, it's for animals, but humans as well are nefesh hayah. Uh, so we're living beings. Um, so there, there's not this clear cut categories. And even the fact that Adam, um, the human, he looks for his. Um, uh, how, how do we say it in, in English? Sorry, <laughs> my brain is thinking in French. But he's he's looking for his partner, and he's looking uh, through the animals, but doesn't find it. But the fact that he's looking there is that there's there's a partnership that's possible. Um, eventually, it's it's with the, the the woman, but still there there's this common um, situation that we uh, we don't look at usually.
0: Yeah, and I really like that scene too because. Um... It takes him, like, getting to know the nature of all of the animals to realize that there's something a bit different about humans, right? Like, he doesn't just automatically know that, right? Like, he has to learn that. And um, so, I think there's even just, you know, in the few first opening chapters of Genesis, like, there's such a rich challenge that it poses to the standard readings of those texts, um, if we really get into it from this sort of animal perspective and looking at the roles of animals, uh, not to mention that nobody questions a talking serpent, mm.
2: right? <laughs> so exactly, that's, and, and we're we're used to saying, well, humans are animals that have language. Well, in Genesis, animals uh, there's not just the humans that can talk, you know?
0: Right, and that's like we're having like a, a pet that you're close with, like you can learn their language, and it has nothing to do with linguistics or phonetics, you know, it's like there's a whole language there that's very subtle. It's not as, as straightforward as fruit. There's a snake
2: relationship with the Lord as well, and he gets punished as well. So, you know, there, there's not, the, the humans are not singled out of this. Uh, there, there's uh, It's much more entangled than we think. And what's interesting is that um, in our current time uh, with this Anthropocene and ecological crisis. One of the the ways of thinking that's brought up by ecological thinkers is this intertwining of species and that we're all in this boat together. And that uh, even even a human being, we have all these different types of of beings inside our own body that help us digest and and be the people that we are. So uh, life is much more entangled uh, than we think even the the distinction the biological distinctions that we think of uh, between uh, life what's what's living and what's not living well the the, the living came out of non-living there's a, there's something that, that 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 there was a spark in something changed but still uh, we all come from the same materials uh, so there's something common so we speak of the, that common Natalie differently in 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 um, ecological uh, ways of uh, speaking today. But these biblical texts also um, gives us to think, gives us these great stories about how uh, we always have been thinking when we think about creation. uh, We have these great myths, and you've been working in uh, comparative comparative studies. uh, Other cultures as well, when they think of uh, where do we come from, think of it with other animals, not just humans as something exceptional.
0: So that brings in something from your description as well and that's that you you focus on Bible but are open to bringing in other scriptures and traditions that are perhaps helpful for understanding this, these things better. Um, so just in you know the paper proposals that you've seen and the kind of the programming that you have coming up, um, what other traditions are you finding that really dialogue well with the Bible?
3: Well, one example is um, so a member of our group and our, our friend Brian Collier, who works from a Pacifica perspective um, and brings in lots of um, Samoan stories and methods of, um, yeah, of telling stories and brings them into dialogue with the Bible. Um, so a story about a shark, for example, being brought into a dialogue with uh, the story of Burnham's donkey. Um, and in in a way he's his work really opens up the text to new ways of thinking in a more imaginative and more fluid um and and more expansive way of understanding um the bible and and in indigenous cultures and knowledges.
2: We, we also have uh, what comes after, so we have um, Beth Berkowitz who works on rabbinic literature and to see uh, uh, what happens to, to animal rights and the questions that, that are asked by the rabbis about all these texts and that we're not the first people that are interrogating the place of the animals uh, and human animals as well in, in these texts. So, but the uh, same thing with um, post-New uh, Testament stuff, like pseudo-Matthew, has uh, these dragons and all sorts of uh, animals interacting with uh, with Jesus when He's uh, as a child. And what we see is that biblical texts are not aside from their uh, culture. They, they've been developments before and after. What we see is that relationship to animals also develop with the traditions around these texts.
0: Yeah, I feel like the Bible is, um, I think, the more and more we understand it, at least from my perspective, um, the more I've come to see it as really a snapshot of sort of the trajectory of human thought, right? Because there's so much background information that can help us understand it. There's so much that comes after because of its influence and and how it's received. Um, and it really is just this kind of, you know, well, it's a, technically a series of snapshots, I guess, but uh, of just different ways of thinking. And it's just mm. even so cool in that way because you can compare a lot within it. But once you start getting beyond it, I feel like it becomes really interesting because then you start seeing trends and Religious thought and human thought, right? And it, it makes the Bible more um, able to converse across space and time. and And that's something I really appreciate about all these different you know comparisons that are happening in in your unit uh, in particular. Um, it's just really fruitful to do that kind of work.
2: And also, in a more confessional way of looking at these sacred texts, it brings theological questions. Um, I'm in a Christian background, uh, and we never think about salvation in a more than human way. It's like if uh, humans are completely exceptional in their relationship to God, and we, we think of eschatology just for humans. But what what would it be to think about the more-than-human and in, in all the different theological questions? Uh, that, now that's something that we probably won't touch as much at the SBL because we're more oriented on textual interpretations of the Bible, but I think that the kind of work we do can also bring forth other questions that could be um, explored in theology.
3: Yeah, I think that's right, and I think that raises a big question about uh, what we're doing when we look at texts. Are we using these texts as theological resources are we using them as historical documents are we using them as stories which can dialogue with stories from our own times Um, like for example when when we were talking about Genesis 1 to 3 before I was listening to the various interpretations and I was like oh, I really like that interpretation that's really fruitful but then there was another voice in my head was like but then there's also this other interpretation which also is immensely powerful and which has which also has a rooting in the text which talks about uh, humans sub- subjugating animals, and um, Adam having a superior status to the animals, and also superior status to Eve, and all these kind of more problematic e- um, areas. And so, I think there is a, a real question—not um, just in animal studies, but but in animal studies as well—of exactly what we're doing when we look at texts, um, and to what end we're doing it.
0: Yeah, and I think, and um, this is where I, I think it's helpful of. Um, almost not, not doing it sort of too much, but kind of um, offering multiple interpretations on an, on an issue, right? Um, There are a lot of different interpretations of, you know, even Genesis one is just one example where you have very different interpretations. Um, And most of, most of them, I would say, are strongly rooted in in the text. Um, And so I think by offering, you know, even people who are, are theologically oriented or practically oriented or, you know, confessional, um, just different opportunities to read the Bible in different ways. Um, And then you can kind of almost choose for yourself, like what you think to be truthful um, or helpful in your understanding of whatever it is you're seeking to understand. Right. So I think that's where something like this is valuable to the practitioner as well, or, you know, to the confessional person, um, because it can offer a, a biblically based alternative to some of the readings that are out there um, and just because it's new doesn't mean it's not rooted in in the text right otherwise interpretations would have died out or the act of interpreting would have died out thousands of years ago it's so it's a very like lively dialogical way of engaging the text and you know the text isn't going to change no matter what we ask of it and I think that's something to also, keep in mind that, you know, we have a whole new set of questions that animal studies is bringing to the text. And that only furthers the conversation about it in the livelihood of the text and, and makes it its longevity even longer. So, we're kind of winding down now. So, I want to ask you, how has this being in this field of biblical studies, this area of biblical studies, um, how has animal studies impacted your understanding of the Bible and the biblical world, um, but also your, your relationship with animals and the world around you. It's just a light note to end on.
2: Okay. Well, um, Susanna said that she's a vegan at the beginning of the episode. I, throughout my research in the last couple of years, went from eating meat seven days a week to even eating meat something like maybe once every two weeks for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, environmental, ethical health reasons, but at the same time, it's also being more and more um, in tune with what I'm working with. And when you read uh, on these subjects and you try to see the, the the animals as subject of these texts, not just like objects, you kind of want to take the next step and see, see them in, in reality as you know um, sentient beings who do suffer, who do die, and who, whose life has intrinsic worth. So that that has changed in my life. And it changed also uh, as a father. Uh, I've been much more attuned to the way I'm talking about animals with my kids and reading Bible stories with them. And it's crazy to see how they they get in touch with these stories through the animals. So it's... take any um, Bible book for kids and it, there's full of animals everywhere because they're not going to identify with an old white Noah. They identify with all these animals and a little bit everywhere in the texts. And they, they, they read through these stories through the animals point of view. So um, this one way it's changed my scholarship is to, to, to de a bit the, the, the point of view instead of looking at what's happening with the, the, human characters, see what is happening with the animal characters? What, what are the verbs? Are they active p- the subjects of verbs? Do, are they doing something for real? Or is something happening to them uh, that, that's maybe not explicit in the text? Um, so, so yeah, it, it, it changes my way of, of reading the texts and, and also changes my way of being a father and uh, eating.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think for me also, it's, it's very difficult to disconnect sort of the academic and the personal um, and one thing which is um, which I feel increasingly like I would like to develop more in my own life is to develop actual genuine relationships with real animals. Um, that, as Sebastian said right at the beginning of the podcast, these are these are real creatures. Animals aren't just kind of metaphors or objects or symbols. Um, and to my shame, I feel like a bit of a hypocrite because I don't have any meaningful relationships with non-human animals. Um, but I've I've recently moved house and I'm finally living somewhere that's big enough to house an animal. And so I'm gonna say this on the podcast because then it has to happen, otherwise all the podcast people will, will hold me accountable. And um, but I'm 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 hoping to get a cat very soon. And I want to call the cat Cohelet, um, which I think is an excellent name. The cat will be very wise and very grumpy. Um for listeners who don't know, Cohelet is the name of the speaker of ecclesiastes. Um so that's that's something which I've I've increasingly been feeling do, researching more and more about animals that I want more more animals in my life to have relationships with.
2: And you see them differently. Last week I was uh, in a zoo and I, I I took some time with an ostrich and boy was that ostrich aggressive. And and now that I, when I read <laughs> the biblical passages about uh, ostriches, I, I read them in a different light because it almost. Uh, took my my children's um, fingers off, you know. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> so being
2: in contact with real animals, you get to see uh, how they react. What, what, and, yeah. and not all ostriches are the same. Uh, so that's also something that comes from animal studies that, that, yes, every species has its way of being, but there are very big differences in the different cats that exists. So maybe the, the, the our biblical um, texts also can be read through the different Inside of the species, anyway, it's fun to have this uh, way of working that also is in relation with the way we live.
0: Yeah, and I can think of so many examples of that too. Of like, um, so there's this kind of odd place in Colorado where I live. Um, It's a couple hours from here, and it's a a croc, and it's an alligator rescue. Um, so it's like people who for some reason get like alligators as pets and like <laughs> reptiles as pets that you just shouldn't have. Um, this place like takes them in when the people realize it's a bad idea. And so they just have tons of them. Um, but to give like medical checks, they will actually do it as what they call an alligator wrestling class. And basically you go and you know, you wrestle it, but like you're helping them like give shots and check teeth and for injuries and stuff like that. Um, but I haven't partaken in the class, but I saw it once and I was like, you know, this this definitely tells me that whatever is going on in the end of Job... (laughs) is like a really big deal, right? And like maybe Behemoth is not a crocodile, like some interpreters want to say, because Behemoth would have none of this nonsense. But it's just, you know, like, it's just you have these experiences, right? And it really helps you to connect things, um, whether it's, you know, just going to a zoo or whatever. And maybe there's something that like, you know, sparks an insight. Um, And you never know how or when that's going to happen. And I think that's the magic of doing this kind of work is that you, you know, you set yourself up for understanding and to like understand the world around you and how you fit into it. Um, and then you just make these connections and, um, that's just, that's so cool mm-hmm. when that happens. Um, and so I couldn't help but ask that as our closing question, um, because I think that you all just, you, you know, it's, it's sparking something in, in your life that was probably already there. Um, but now it's kind of coming to the forefront of, of your consciousness and what a great name for a cat. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, you all, thank you very much for being here. Um, thank you for giving us an opportunity to get introduced to this new way of understanding the text and the world around it, and also our own world. I think having this it's a very strong connection to our modern questions and our modern issues um, is really where it's at in the way that biblical studies is unfolding in this century. Um, I think it's, this is a really good addition to, to what the field is doing. Um, So thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure to speak with both of you and to get to understand this area a bit more.
2: Thank you. And I, I think th- this kind of podcast is very important as well. It's very easy for us to be in discussions between ourselves and only stick to you know, footnotes and all these uh, it, translations of ancient texts. But uh, it's important to speak uh, in, a, in a way people can actually hear and have a, a you know, real, um, real conversation about real stuff uh, at the same time uh, with this knowledge that we're developing.
3: Yes. And if any of your listeners are coming along to FBL in November, do come and visit us. We'd be very happy to chat to any of you. Yes. So um,
0: again, the name of the session is the Bible and Animal Studies. And we've been speaking to the co-chairs, uh, Suzanne, Susanna Miller uh, Miller, and Sebastian Doan. Um, so thank you very much for being here and I'll probably see you in November. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate.
2: Until next time, keep digging.